it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Wednesday, September 21st, 2022, and the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Guy Benson, your host political editor at townhall.com, and a Fox News contributor. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. All of your program-related needs available there. If you want the podcast, which is free every day after we air, you can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram. It's the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. And we are broadcasting live from Chicago today Back home tomorrow for one day, then up to New York for lots of TV duties that we will let you know all about in due time. We are loaded up today. Extremely busy show ahead. Here's the lineup. Blake Masters will be here later this hour. Blake is the Republican nominee for the United States Senate in Arizona. That's a winnable race. Mark Kelly is the incumbent. How will Blake Masters try to take down his opponent. We'll ask him about that coming up. In the next hour, Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. She will be here on a number of issues, including this new lawsuit against President Trump being filed in New York and a bombshell development in Russia that I woke up to this morning with Vladimir Putin making some moves in regard to Ukraine. Seems like a significant escalation, but also a sign of desperation on his part. We will talk to Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg later in the program about that. What does that mean? And finally, in our last hour, the happy hour, Josh Krasauer will be our guest, one of our favorite political analysts. Very, very smart, impartial, and he tells it like it is. Unlike a lot of folks who do a lot of wish casting, that's not what Josh does. And we will have him here to talk about the state of the race as we are, as we mentioned yesterday, now less than seven weeks away from a very important midterm election. Now, yesterday I saw, I was like last evening I saw President Biden was at the White House and he had given some remarks from a podium. And as he was walking out of the room, a reporter shouted a question at him about the border crisis, because we haven't heard much from him on the border crisis. The administration keeps saying that the border is secure, right? That's their line, which is clearly laughably untrue. Two million encounters, apprehensions at the border this fiscal year alone with a month left to go. More than two million. Roughly one million known gotaways on this president's watch. To describe the border as secure is an insult. So a reporter shouted out a question about this. Why is the border more overwhelmed under your watch, Mr. President? And he gave an answer that is just nonsense. Here's the exchange cut four. Why is the border more overwhelmed under your watch, Mr. President? Because there are three countries that are never have There are fewer, there are fewer immigrants coming from Central America and from Mexico. This is a totally different circumstance. 
What's on my watch now is Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. And the ability to send them back to those states is not rational. You could send them back and have them wait. We're working with Mexico and other countries to see if we can stop the flow. But that's the difference. That's not the difference. First of all, he says, well, there's fewer immigrants coming in from Central America and Mexico. Then he lists one of the countries where they're pouring in from at the moment, Nicaragua, which is, drum roll, in Central America. Setting that aside, this is an unserious response. He's trying to pretend as though this is, in his words, quote, totally different because at the moment the uptick happens to be from certain countries where he thinks it would be wrong to send people back, to deport them back to, like, communist regimes in Venezuela or Cuba. Now, if that were just the case, like, things have been going fine for the last two years on this front, and then there was this influx that spiked from these countries, but everything else had been normal, then maybe we can have a conversation about this answer. But... It's not a good answer. It's not an accurate answer. It is not a fair answer at all. This is a deflection, hoping that maybe if everyone who might pay attention to this sees the soundbite, say, oh, well, maybe this is a little different. Those three countries, you know, he he was rattling off certain countries in particular. It's all just misdirection. It's unresponsive. We didn't see huge numbers from Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua specifically a few months ago where the crisis was raging just as hot where you had, what, now eight months under President Biden with more than 200,000 apprehensions each month. And in each of those cases, there are uh, tens of thousands of known gotaways that we're aware of each time. When we think all the way back to earlier in the year in the whipping smear against the Border Patrol agents that he himself, the president, fomented and spread and said that the border agents who actually, in fact, had not been whipping anyone, that they were going to be punished. We've talked about that a lot because it's one of the only times that Biden has said anything about the crisis. It was his opportunity to attack U.S. officials, as opposed to the problem that he and his policies have caused. But that was around Del Rio, Texas, and a bunch of Haitian nationals that were coming up from South America. Remember that? So he's inserting, in this case, it's not Haiti, now it's these countries, and you can't send people back to those countries because, you know, they're dangerous regimes. And so it's just a constant moving target. It's Calvin Ball. It's nonsense. The nations and countries of origin ebb and flow, and they've been doing so for the last year and a half, over the course of which millions of people, millions, have come to this country illegally because of the incentive structure from this Biden administration and their policy on this front. They are encouraging and inviting illegal immigration, and it's happening. And the cartels are making a huge amount of money off of it. Month after month after month after month. And for him to hide behind whatever this answer is, I mean, they really don't have anything. It's a total non-explanation. But I guess that's like the latest excuse that he has dreamed up here. One thing that I learned when I was down at the border, Katie Pavlich and I were down there together a few months ago. We broadcast from the border two different cities at the border. 
And what officials told us, there are a few different things that they mentioned to us. One of them is, over the course of this administration, there have been illegal immigrants encountered and captured from more than 150 different countries. More than 150 countries. He mentioned three of them, like that's, oh, the the unique state of the problem. It's just a totally different circumstance. It's not true. The word is out clearly that if you want to enter the United States, you want to do so illegally and get a pretty good chance of getting in without getting stopped or being processed and released to the tune of millions of people, you come to the southern border and you cross. That's what you do. And that's what they have done by the millions under this president. And as we mentioned in our interview yesterday with Chad Wolf, the former acting DHS secretary, in August alone, there were a dozen people on the FBI's terrorist watch list that were caught at the border just last month, 12. And those are the people that we know of that were caught. Who isn't getting caught by overwhelmed officials that are just overrun by this onslaught? Day after day, thousands of people every single day. People are getting away. It would stand to reason that more of the people getting away want to elude or evade capture. They could be disproportionately more dangerous, national security or public safety risks. Criminals, felons, potential terrorists. We know of 12 that were stopped at the border just in August. Bringing the total this year up to 78, blowing away. The last five years combined, the number was you take the last five years combined on this metric and you triple it, and that's what's happened so far this year that we know of. And I saw one Republican strategist make a point that was accurate and also sort of darkly humorous. Logan Dobson commenting that that number, the 12 terror watch list people caught crossing the border in August alone. He said most of the media won't cover that detail unless those 12 potential terrorists are sent to Nantucket. And then we'll get a big firestorm, and the bad guy, of course, will be anyone who sent the potential terrorists to Nantucket. I chuckled and then just shook my head because it's true. So Biden's out there just making things up. This answer is garbage. It doesn't make any sense. It does not apply to the problem. There is no accountability. There is no ownership of this problem whatsoever. Someone asked him about Governor DeSantis down in Florida reportedly sending a plane of migrants up to his state of Delaware, Biden's state of Delaware, and Biden's comeback to that was, oh, DeSantis should visit Delaware. We have beautiful beaches there. Uh, Yeah, we know. You're there all the time, Mr. President, just constant vacations for him at the Delaware Seashore. We know that you love the beaches in Delaware, which is where it seems like he spends most of his time these days. Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, she was arguing that by doing what they've done, busing or flying, and I'm talking about the Republican governors here, by busing and flying illegal immigrants to these jurisdictions, the sanctuary jurisdictions, supposedly proud of what they do, she said that they are literally, the Republicans are literally putting lives at risk. Yes, because nothing is so terrifying as the prospect of the mean streets of Martha's Vineyard. Literally putting their lives at risk. You never get that kind of condemnation of the machine that is driving 
illegal immigration run by the cartels. Talk about putting people's lives at risk. When you incentivize illegal immigration, you are actually, literally, putting lives at risk. Unlike what Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis have done here. Hundreds of migrants have died this year. Hundreds have died at the border. Right? Just running out of food and water in the desert, drowning in the river. The 50-plus migrants cooked to death in the back of that tractor-trailer a nightmare a few weeks ago. Those numbers add up to hundreds. And then you've got the other human toll, like sexual abuse, that is so often associated, especially for women, on human trafficking. They don't say anything about that kind of thing. No, the people putting lives at risk, supposedly, are Greg Abbott bussing migrants to Washington, D.C., Although D.C. and Chicago and New York actually do have crime problems, so that's another issue. And then, and then Ron DeSantis putting some migrants on an airplane, having them sign releases and go up there to Martha's Vineyard where they had a slumber party for basically a day and a half and then were deported off of the island. I see that some left-wing activist lawyers have gotten a few of these migrants, of those specific migrants, to file a lawsuit against DeSantis. They're claiming, oh, they didn't really understand, and some of the documents weren't translated in a way that they understood where they were going. Uh, I thought we weren't supposed to be using these people as pawns to make political statements. Isn't that exactly what these left-wing lawyers are now doing with this nonsense, frivolous lawsuit? Imagine being an illegal immigrant. Think about this. You're an illegal immigrant coming to this country illegally in violation of our laws, you do it knowingly because you want to be in the United States. Then you sign a piece of paper, an American official sends you to one of the nicest places in the country, and you decide that your second major act after sneaking into the country illegally, so you've broken the law once already, and your second major decision is, I'm going to sue an American leader because he sent me to Martha's Vineyard. Zero sympathy for those people. None. They should be deported. And by the way, Biden's saying, well, you shouldn't deport them back to Venezuela or to Cuba. These are communist regimes. That's sort of the subtext, and his administration's making that point as well. You don't have to send them back to those countries. We could actually do the remain in Mexico policy, where they stay in Mexico while their asylum claims are adjudicated. That's what Trump put in. It worked. Biden got rid of it and is barely using it at all. He was forced to by the courts to not completely throw it out, but they have slowed that to a trickle. They have effectively gotten rid of it. So this drama continues to play out. Governor DeSantis is, as usual, not just taking any of the criticism lying down. He is aggressively pushing back, and we've got some sound on that And we will play that sound for you after this break. I've got a break because I'm running late. We'll take it. It's short. Stay with us. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So Governor DeSantis, right in the middle of this, I think he's very pleased to be in the thick of this and fighting on this front, was asked by a reporter about critiques from Democrats that 
this is human trafficking that he's engaged in. Uh, and here's the response from DeSantis Cut 11. Representative Jeffries, he said, and I'm quoting him, he said, you and Governor Abbott need to stop acting like, or start acting like governors and stop acting like human traffickers. First, what is your response to that? And second, is there a second migrant flight going from Texas to uh, Delaware right now? So when Biden is flying these people all over the fruited plain in the middle of the night, I didn't hear a peep out of those people, okay? I didn't hear a peep. I haven't heard a peep about all the people that have been told by Biden you can just come in and they're going, they're being abused by the cartels, they're drowning in the Rio Grande. You had 50 that died in some shed in Texas. I heard no outrage about any of that. Uh, I haven't heard outrage about all the fentanyl that's come across the border that's killing Americans in record numbers. And DeSantis was not done. Cut 13. But what happened was... They were, they were provided um, an ability to be in the, the most posh sanctuary jurisdiction maybe in the world. And obviously it's sad that Martha's Vineyard people deported them the next day. They could have absorbed this. They chose not to. But what it shows is if 50 was a burden on one of the richest places in our country, what about all these other communities that have been overrun with hundreds or thousands? It shows you when now these policies are on the front burner, people need to be talking about. Biden can't defend his policies of open borders. Uh, it's doing huge damage uh, to our country. It's costing a lot of money. It's costing lives with the drugs that are pouring across. And so the question is, is why are you supporting Biden's policies? Why don't you step up and tell him you're failing and let's do it differently? Because you know what? He inherited a border that wasn't like this. He has created the crisis. But now at least we know nobody can deny that there's a crisis. Everybody now knows. And it was only because you had to have the elite who want to have the cost on everybody else and they don't want to have to shoulder that. That's the only reason now people are talking about this. Yep. Hard to argue with any of that. And you have all this umbrage, fake outrage. Oh, human trafficking, how dare they? They're putting lives at risk. It's cruel, it's inhumane. And DeSantis is saying exactly what we've been saying here. Not a word from these people for the last year and a half with millions pouring across the border. And if it's just the people of Texas and those taxpayers and those communities dealing with it in Arizona, well, that's fine. You bring them anywhere near us, oh, well, now it's a real problem. And it's the Republicans' fault. Good stuff there from DeSantis. Blake Masters of Arizona coming up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. Glad you're here. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free after the program every day on demand. Joining us now is Blake Masters, Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate out in Arizona. And, Blake, it's good to have you here. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. So 
This is the first time you've been on the program. So for our audience, and we're all over the country, we have listeners in your state, but elsewhere as well. What's your background? What do people need to know about Blake Masters as you are entering this home stretch of a very important election cycle? Well, I grew up in Arizona. I met my wife in middle school in Tucson, where we live now. Uh, but I went out to Stanford, Stanford Law School. I made my career as a technology investor, investing in uh, startup technology companies, investing in innovation. I got a chance to move back to Arizona a couple years ago, and the state had changed. Uh, it got a lot more blue. I think it's still a swing state, of course, still leans Republican, but uh, the Democrats really did make inroads, and I think it's ruining the state. I think uh, Joe Biden, Mark Kelly, my opponent, I think their open borders, high inflation uh, agendas ruining my state. And I got sick of it. You know, I have three young boys. They're eight, six, and two years old. Uh, and I worry about the country that they're on track to, to grow up in. And so I thought, hey, this is a great time to put my business career on hold, dive into this political fray, because we got to stop Biden. we got to go on offense. We just need to make a change. You are one of several first-time candidates running in key Senate races around the country for the Republican Party. I asked something very similar to Herschel Walker the other day, which is you've got the background that you just described. Now you're in this fray running for this very important seat at a very high level. Just describe for us what that learning curve has been like for you as you've sort of been feeling this process out. Well, you know, it's it's different. It's uh, Politics is not just like business, although I think my business background really does help ground me, um, right? I, I've, I've focused on innovation in my career. I think the government needs to, to do more with less. You know, too many Democrats, they just want to do more with more, and that's always uh, a disaster. Too many Republicans, though, just kind of want to do less with less and pretend that uh, the government can never do anything. And then we just lower our expectations and we tolerate failure, and I'm tired of that. The government has a role to play, right? Its job is to secure the border. It's to secure the conditions under which uh, free people can thrive. Um, and I'm tired of seeing incompetence and waste and all that. So so with this private sector background going in, um, I think I just bring a new perspective. And my theory was, hey, what if I just tell the truth? What if I just speak from the heart and talk about uh, these issues, not like a politician, not like someone who's just going to memorize consultant-provided talking points, but like a human being? And I think that's why I'm getting so much traction in Arizona, despite getting radically outspent. Uh, I'm authentic. I'm bold in service of a very commonsensical agenda. Can we please secure the border and support our police and have 2% inflation instead of 20% inflation? My opponent, Mark Kelly, is just the opposite. He pretends to be a moderate, but in D.C. he's voting uh, even to the left of Bernie Sanders. And so that's just a stark contrast, and I'm pretty darn sure uh, Arizonans are going to vote to make a change in November. We'll come back to your opponent, Mark Kelly, and his voting record in a moment. But you did just reference the big canyon separating your campaign and his when it comes to spending. They have raised a huge amount of money over there, a massive war chest. They've plowed even more dollars in from outside groups and Chuck Schumer and all of that. Meanwhile, it's not really a secret. You've had a little bit more trouble raising money. There's been some drama surrounding the Republican side in Arizona and who's going to fundraise and who's going to put money in and people finger pointing back and forth different you know, folks. You know, Where's Trump? Where's Peter Thiel? What about Mitch McConnell? There's just been a fair amount of consternation about that. That is probably not a very fun thing to have sort of as part of the background noise in this campaign when you're getting walloped in that, de- in that department anyway. Is that finally getting resolved? How are you trying to at least come close to parity with people who are 
outspending you, or at least have up to this point, by enormous margins? Well, we're going to have the resources we need to win the race. That's the bottom line. I try not to focus on the drama and the headlines and, oh, who's going to come in from the outside and provide air cover? I can't control that, right? I think the dam breaks at some point. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but, but while some of that drama has been unfolding, two things have happened. One, I'm busting my tail raising hard dollars, right, those campaign dollars. I'm making 100 phone calls a day, raising between fifty dollars and $70,000 a day. Is that as much as Mark Kelly? No. But is it enough to get our message out? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Mark Kelly's got a disadvantage with all of that money. He's got to lie. He's got to lie about me. He's got to lie about his own record. Past a certain point that all that money, right, that fifth TV ad in a row, just kind of serves to remind people how fake and packaged he is. So I'm raising the hard dollars uh, to get the message out. And then we've had, I think, $8 million already in outside commitments come in in the last two weeks. Uh, so right now, Mark Kelly's up on TV. We're up with about 70% of as much TV in Maricopa County. So we're getting the message out, and that's why the polls are starting to tighten. Uh, This Arizona electorate really does want to break right. It wants to vote Republican. We just got to get the message out, give them a a notice that, hey, if you you want to check Joe Biden's agenda, Blake Masters is your guy. Mark Kelly's just pretending. On the polling, it's been sort of all over the place. I try to keep an eye on polling pretty closely. I write about it. I talk about it here. And I've seen a number of surveys out of your race that show really not a terribly competitive race. Mark Kelly's up 8, 10, 12 points. Then there's other polls where it's like, you know, two points, three points, very much striking distance. Uh, Maybe some of the, you know, the polls are just garbage in, garbage out. I don't really know. But it's sort of hard, at least from a far distance, to get a real handle on what's happening out there with some of the dissonance in the data what can, you, what can you tell us, what you're seeing, your campaign, your internal numbers, your people on the ground at this point? I think I'm down between one and four points right now. You know, anything that shows me down more than that, uh, I'm pretty sure that's someone putting their thumb on the scale. You can get a poll to say anything you want, of course. You know, just tweak a few variables, and, uh, and there's your answer. But this is a close race, and, you know, I think a lot of pollsters, even if they mean well, actually, they don't know how to poll this electorate. I can't tell you how fired up grassroots Republicans are in Arizona. You know, they just see the country disappearing right before their eyes. They see this wide open border. They see the weaponization of federal law enforcement against political enemies, right? The, the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. And so a lot of these people won't honestly answer a pollster's call. They're not going to spend a half hour on the phone and confess that they support Trump or that they're pretty conservative. Not when the president of the United States is on TV, Joe Biden calling people fascists, enemies to democracy, if they just want uh, a check on illegal immigration. And so I don't think that pollsters terribly understand how to model this red wave, this grassroots enthusiasm that we're going to see, especially in Arizona. So polls tell you something, but half the time they're just trying to shape the narrative and and discourage us, and we can't uh, take the bait. We played a soundbite a few days ago on this show. I know you've definitely seen it. Local news interview, Senator Kelly, he was asked about Joe Biden's job performance as president of the United States, and he hemmed and hawed and erred and ummed and stuttered for a while and then finally said it wasn't his job uh, to render a verdict on that. It's interesting, though, because his voting record really has rendered a verdict on what he thinks of Joe Biden, which is he gives Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer every single thing that they want on any issue of importance, right? He'll, he'll put out a press release here or there trying to pretend that he's independent, saying, no, we've got to get tough and serious about this border problem. But when there's chips down and there's a meaningful vote, Every single time Mark Kelly 
is an ally of Joe Biden. And then when he's asked straight up, do you think Biden's doing well as president? He doesn't want to answer that question. I find that rather interesting. Interesting and dishonest, you know, and that's the unfortunate truth is Mark Kelly lied to the people in Arizona. He promised in 2020 when he was campaigning that he would be independent. He promised that. And instead, he's actually one of the most partisan senators in D.C. He actually, you know, votes, depending on how you measure it, votes for Biden's agenda 95 percent to 97 percent of the time. He's just a rubber stamp for the Schumer Biden agenda. His bet is with all that money. Right. They spent 65 million dollars propping this guy up and attacking me. He still can't crack 50 percent in a credible poll. But their theory is that they can just get on TV and, and lie more and say, oh, I'm an independent. Oh, I'm a moderate. Uh, that they'll win. But this time he's got a track record. And voters in Arizona don't like that. They don't like the dishonesty and they don't like this left wing track record that's just delivered. Again, five million illegal aliens coming through an open border, double digit inflation, the worst inflation in the country. It's what we're suffering in the greater Phoenix metro. And so all I have to do is tell the truth and get out there and say, hey, this guy's not who he's pretending to be. He's actually voting in lockstep for Joe Biden. Now, they're calling you a radical and extremist and dangerous and all these things. Uh, two of the issues that they're coming after are Social Security, some of the comments you've made about that, also abortion. How are you pushing back on those attacks? Because clearly they're spending a lot of that money trying to define you in a way that obviously you would disagree with. And that, that seems like time is of the essence to make sure that message that they're sending out there doesn't stick. Of course, they're trying to distract people. They want to talk about abortion and Social Security because they don't want to talk about their failed record at the southern border, their failed management of the economy uh, that's, that's leaving families hungry and bankrupt in many cases, right? But I just tell the truth. You know, I, I always called for the repeal of Roe versus Wade. Send that issue back to the states. Arizona's decided 15 weeks with all the common exceptions. And, you know, I support that law. I'm not going to mess with that at the federal level. I think we need to backstop. I think we need to ban partial birth abortions, ban abortions in the third trimester, the exception for the health of the mother. And that's where most Arizonans are at, right? Mark Kelly, he has to lie about my views here because his own views are so radical. He believes in no limits at all. He voted for abortion on demand up until the moment of birth, which is something 80 or 90 percent of their Americans and Arizonans find just completely unconscionable. So they take things out of context. They lie. You know, on Social Security, I'm the one who's always said we're never going to pull the rug out from our seniors. We can never cut Social Security. Now, we have to look for ways to shore up the program long term. I don't think my kids right now are on track to receive Social Security, right? We should let young people invest unlimited amounts of money, however much they can save in this Joe Biden economy. Funnel that money into a, a Roth IRA, uh, and let them build wealth tax-free. Then maybe we can make some millionaires, and they won't have to have Social Security when they're 65. But if the markets don't work, I've always been clear. Social Security needs to be there as a backstop. I believe in the program. And actually, the greatest threat to retirement today is the inflation that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have caused. That's what's really yep. hurting seniors today. Eating away at their savings on you know fixed-income people, it's brutal for them. And I know that's an issue that you hear about time and again out there on the campaign trail. You've also been hitting on the border uh, and also crime, right? These are not necessarily unrelated, uh, and there, there's some overlap there. But on the issue of immigration, I do want to ask you, one of the big national controversies in the last few days has been the Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, Doug Ducey plan, which is sending some of these illegal immigrants, just a small number of them, off to self-described sanctuary jurisdictions. 
cities, states, uh, one particular island, a very nice one in Massachusetts. And you've seen people on the left just screaming about this. They are absolutely furious. They say this is really inhumane and cruel and all of that. What do you think about what your governor, Governor Ducey, has done cooperating with these other Republicans to basically export a fraction of the crisis to the cities and jurisdictions run by people who support the crisis? Well, I think those cities and jurisdictions and those people asked for it, right? The the real crisis is just the open border. People want to say, oh, Ron DeSantis is a human trafficker because he sent these folks to Martha's Vineyard. Well, Biden has enabled the Mexican drug cartel to traffic more than 4 million human beings in the last 18 months. Those people, and I've seen them, Guy, I've seen them. They they walk up to the border wall. They throw their national identification cards on the ground. They walk over into United States territory. They get processed by Border Patrol. They get on buses funded by taxpayers. NGOs ship them to Sky Harbor in Phoenix, the airport. And then they, they fly and they disappear to all these cities in the interior. That's been happening for almost two years under Joe Biden's watch. But all of a sudden, the left wants to get mad that 50 of them were directed to Martha's Vineyard. Right, and they call it oh, a huge humanitarian crisis. Now they recognize, and I think they mobilized the National Guard to like, mm-hmm. get those people off that island within 24 hours. They couldn't even tolerate 48 hours. And so I think it's uh, – is it a stunt? Yes, it's a stunt. But it brought national attention to this border crisis that the media, the left-wing media, ordinarily doesn't want to cover because they just want to cover for Joe Biden and Mark Kelly. So I say, great, now people are talking about it. And 50 a day in Martha's Vineyard, man, this is what uh, – We've lived with for two years. Every hour, there's 50 that come over into the Yuma sector in Arizona. So it's nice that people are finally talking about this crisis. Blake Masters, Republican nominee for Senate out in Arizona. And he just said a few moments ago that based on his understanding of the race and his read on it, he's down one to four points right now. It's getting to be that crucial stretch down toward November. And, Blake, maybe we can get you back here sometime in October. And maybe when we speak next, things will have tightened even more. It's a race that we're watching extremely closely. Good luck. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you. Blake Masters on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back after this break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson in Chicago today. It's The Guy Benson Show. So Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, another big race in the U.S. Senate. In fact, we'll be talking about the Senate map and the overall landscape with Josh Krasauer coming up later in the show in our final hour. I saw on his Twitter feed, Josh highlighted a brand new ad from Dr. Oz and his campaign with Fetterman ducking debates and agreeing to maybe do one. But after early voting has already been underway for a long time, right before the election, with all these stipulations, Oz is out with what I think is a very good ad highlighting a number of the big vulnerabilities with Fetterman, all in one quick 30-second spot. Let's listen to it. This is Cut 35. Why is radical John Fetterman dodging debates? Because he can't defend freeing convicted murderers even over Josh Shapiro's objection. And phony Fetterman backed massive middle-class tax hikes but didn't pay his own taxes 67 times. Why were the taxes not paid when they should have been paid? Just fell through the cracks. What a fraud. Fetterman dodges debates and taxes but demands that you pay more. I'll cut your taxes and I won't take a penny of them either. And that's Dr. Oz at the end. What a fraud. Fetterman dodges 
debates and taxes. That's a good line. And they're really hammering Fetterman on the issue of crime. He has some very extreme views on, like, releasing murderers from prison, releasing, like, a third of the prison population. So there's a lot of material to work with there. There's a new column out today written by George Will, who is a famous conservative, of course. He's been very critical of President Trump. But, boy, does he take the sledgehammer to John Fetterman in this column about the race. He writes, The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that, quote, for a long stretch, lasting well into his 40s, Fetterman's main source of income came from his parents, including $54,000 in 2015 alone. As mayor from his mid-30s until he was 49, he earned $150 a month. In 2013, he paid his sister $1 for a loft she'd purchased for 70 grand. He was mayor of Braddock, population 1700, near Pittsburgh from 2006 to 2019. The town's decay, the population decline, one-third of the remaining residents are in poverty, resisted whatever ameliorative talents Fetterman acquired with his degree from Harvard's Kennedy School. He's basically just calling him not just a, a phony populist who's like on the dole from his parents into his 40s, but someone who's just kind of a deadbeat. Will writes, six feet, eight inches, tattooed arms, shaved head, a goatee. His signature costume is a hoodie and shorts, even in winter. Perhaps even at parent-teacher meetings at his children's private school. His synthetic authenticity signals proletarian envy, a Bernie Sanders acolyte embarrassed by having uncalloused hands. Whereas Dr. Oz is a world-renowned doctor and surgeon. Interesting choice in Pennsylvania. We'll take a break. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson in Chicago today. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, is free on demand every day. And as we begin our middle of three hours, a Fox News alert with the Dow closing way down. Sell-off on Wall Street today. 522 points in the red at the close, ending the day at 30,183 as the Fed announced rate hikes because they are dealing with bad inflation. The numbers were awful last week. These are the consequences, and the market's obviously reacting the way that they are. And it didn't have to be this bad, but decisions were made and policies were enacted, and politicians told stories and fairy tales and lies about what the impact would be, and now we're actually feeling that impact, and we've been feeling it for a while. Joining us now is Kimberly Strassel. Potomac Watch columnist for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, also a Fox News contributor. Her latest book is Resistance at All Costs. And, Kim, it's great to have you back. It is great to be here, Guy. I want to start with a soundbite. I I saw this earlier. It's the White House spokeswoman, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was trying to sort of play a little bit of cleanup after President Biden said on 60 Minutes he hadn't done a TV interview since February. Then he finally did one. And he said pretty prominently and famously at this point that the pandemic is over. And you've gotten a lot of Democrats, including folks at the White House, sort of walking that back, 
Democrats on Capitol Hill saying, no, no, the pandemic is not over. We have to spend more emergency money to, to do all these things. The White House is trying to at least clarify that Biden wasn't saying the problem is over. And Jean-Pierre had a very interesting way of, I guess, downplaying what the president said and the context in which he said it. Let's listen to cut 27. So just to step back for a second, what we saw during that interview, uh, 60 minute interview, when he made those comments, he was walking through uh, the, the Detroit uh, car show, the halls of the Detroit car show, and he was looking around. We have to remember the last time that they had held that event was three years ago. Even as we're talking about Unga, the president's going to speak shortly, as I just mentioned, we that hasn't been held in, in person for about three years as well. So we are in a different time. He's been very consistent about that. And the reason why is because we are now prepared. We are now ready. We know how to deal with uh, this pandemic. It is now more manageable. It's not as disruptive as it's been uh, in the prior in the prior years. So it sounds a little bit, Kim, like they're saying, well, yeah, the pandemic is over, but maybe it's not over, over, but it's just different and it's better. And a lot of people are wondering, was Jean-Pierre suggesting that when Biden said the words the pandemic is over, was he distracted by the cars at the car show? It's just seeming like they can't quite land on an answer about what the president actually believes and what policies would flow from it. Well, first of all, Guy, can you believe that this is where we are? Essentially, the White House is constantly trying to clean up behind everything that Joe Biden says. But here's my suspicion as to why they are being very fuzzy here, and they, they're being very careful and trying to walk back his words a little bit. And it all comes down to money. If there is still an emergency, there is all kinds of ways that Democrats can continue shoveling money out the door to people in ways that they want to. So, for instance, we have legislation saying that uh, as long as there is an emergency, uh, states can't kick people off of Medicaid rolls. There's been a dramatic increase in the number of people on them. Uh, since the COVID pandemic began, and they can't get rid of them. Uh, food stamps, work requirements, those are all waived so long as there is a pandemic and an emergency going on. Uh, this is the excuse they've used to push forward forbearance on student loans. Um, and, of course, they're asking for billions more from Congress right now in additional COVID money. So they have to claim that there's still an emergency. So the president was speaking truth in that interview, but it's going to create a bunch of policy headaches for them, and that's why they're now creeping back. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I want to ask you a question just about politics and the elections coming up, talking a lot about it in the first hour. We had a candidate on here. We've got uh, more analysis coming up in the next hour. Specifically, I know that you spend a lot of time in Alaska. You've got a house up there. What is your take and read on the ranked choice voting experiment in Alaska? Because I know a lot of Republicans say, well, hold up. Here is a congressional special election where 60 percent of the votes went to Republicans, but the Democrat won because of this system. And it took a while to hammer out exactly who won and days to actually announce it. Uh, What are your thoughts on that voting process? And then how are you looking at the Senate race and the at-large House race in Alaska coming up in November? Yeah, first of all, let me tell you from experience, ranked choice voting is a mess. And if it ever threatens to come to your state, just say no. Um, Part of the problem here, too, was that this initiative in Alaska that passed also created a jungle primary system in the beginning, 
when Don Young passed away and they held that initial special election, we had something like 47 candidates on the ballot. Um, so there was really no way to, to get down to people's actual policy positions. Then you come up to the, the general election for that special election. Um, and yes, uh, in the first round, only 40 percent of uh, uh, the state voted for Mary Patola, the Democrat. And that makes sense. This is a state that went, you know, 10 points for Donald Trump um, in the last election. Um, and yet somehow, because of the way this works, because the candidate with the fewest ballots after the first round gets eliminated, and because a lot of uh, Alaskans, especially Republican voters in protest, chose not to choose a second choice, um, because it was a protest. Um, in the end, you had these juked results that ended up with uh, the first Democrat representing a House seat in Alaska for decades and decades. Um, and you now have the Republican Party in Alaska doing a whole bunch of education efforts just to try to explain how all this works. Um, and voting should just simply not be that complicated. So as we're going forward, we're obviously – that special election was just to fill the, the end of the term of Don Young. Um, and now we're going to have a general election uh, to see who fills the next two years. Uh, we will see what happens and if the Republican Party actually manages to explain to its voters uh, how this works. Um, this is also very interesting in terms of the Senate race. Uh, Lisa Murkowski obviously benefited uh, profoundly from this jungle primary system. If she'd had to face her uh, primary opponent, Republican primary opponent, Kelly Sabaka, in a straight-up primary, she undoubtedly would have lost. Instead, because of this jungle system, she moved ahead to the next round. But even there, there was recently a, a projection poll by uh, AARP based on information they got back in a poll from voters showing that this could still be a very tight race. It's unlikely that a Democrat wins that seat, but it is still a situation where it could be very close between Murkowski and Sabaka. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that. It's just interesting, a state that doesn't always get a ton of attention nationally, but because of sort of this interesting quirk, I wanted to ask you about it. Meanwhile, there's news today out of New York, the attorney general suing Donald Trump and his company for what she says is widespread lying and fraud, uh, you know, I think a lot of Republicans will see this as a politically motivated witch hunt that they have been waging against Donald Trump forever. And this is deep blue New York getting in on the act. Uh, then people who hate Trump will say, you know, good. Uh, the more investigations, the more indictments, the more lawsuits, the better. He's got all this coming to him. Uh, I'm sitting here sort of suspicious of the motives in New York. I also don't understand if they're accusing him of like you know, lying and like tax evasion and and, and fraud why aren't they filing charges as opposed to filing a lawsuit? I, I don't know if that's a legal distinction that makes sense to me. I might be missing something. In the context of all these other things flying around right now, what's your analysis of this one? Yeah, this is very hard to take seriously only for this reason, Guy. And I think that this is the real problem is that Letitia James, the attorney general, actually campaigned on promising – to prosecute or sue Donald Trump um, before she was even in office, before she had even taken any look at anything that he had done. Um, that's hugely problematic for a law enforcement official to make those kind of promises, and it inevitably means that if such 
prosecution does come, some such lawsuit, the people, of course, are going to be skeptical of it. And I think the other thing that makes people skeptical is the timing because of what you said. Uh, we're headed into the midterms right now. Um, suddenly you have this raid in Mar-a-Lago. Suddenly you have this. And all of these things are colliding. And it certainly makes it much easier for Donald Trump and his supporters to suggest that there is a, a campaign to get him. Yeah, and I think that's certainly overall what the Republican response to this story is going to be. Meanwhile, I would like to ask you about a column that you wrote, and it dovetails nicely with something that we were asking Glenn Youngkin about, the governor of Virginia. He was on the show yesterday. A big reason that he won in my state was education. Angry parents on COVID issues, on indoctrination issues, just uh, you know, education generally. Parents in particular felt like the Democrats and their union allies were failing kids. Youngkin caught that sort of energy in a bottle, and he was able to then parlay that into something of an upset victory in an increasingly blue state. I asked him if he thinks that Republicans are in some ways blowing it on this issue in 2022, because it was so powerful in 2021. We haven't had a national election since all this harm was done to children, especially by Democrats in blue states. This is a chance for a referendum on that and to really focus on it. I know you have written about it, the power of angry parents. Are Republicans understandably focusing on you know, inflation, immigration, crime, and those other things, perhaps too much at the expense of something that is or should be a very live issue, in your view? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, I don't know if they're entirely blowing it because they still have some time. And you do have some candidates out there who are running on it. For instance, the Republican candidate for Senate in Washington state running against Democrat Patty Murray. Uh, This Republican is named Tiffany Smiley. She's running on it. But here's the thing. People are neglecting just how angry parents remain. It's not as if this was a one and done thing. They're they're living now with the consequences of this, which is still infuriating them. We've seen the national test scores come in, the dramatic fall offs. Um, we still have some school districts that are requiring kids to mask up, um, even though there is no evidence that this. Works. Oh yeah, no, the, these um, are live issues, and I, exa- you're saying exactly the right thing. This is not something that happened last year. The anger is real. The consequences are still in front of us, and it needs to be covered closely. Kim Strassel on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. A little bit of a flare-up yesterday on The View. We could just do segments every day about the insanity and inanity on The View. But this one was interesting because of the response that it provoked from one of our friends here on the show, Nikki Haley, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., former governor of South Carolina. So one of the co-hosts, Alyssa Farah, was talking about Republicans that she likes. She mentioned Nikki Haley. And then Sonny Hostin, who's one of the liberal hosts, jumped in and was sort of suggesting that Nikki Haley has run away from her ethnicity because she uses a fake name or something like that. That was the attack. Listen to cut 37. Nikki Haley was an incredibly effective governor what is her of real South name Carolina. Again? There are some of by. us that can be chameleons and decide not to embrace our ethnicity so that we can pass. Sonny, I so don't that think that's don't fair. You go by a different name. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be the one to say because it. But. Most Americans can't pronounce Asuncion because of the undereducation. Aha. Uh-huh. So Sonny attacks 
saying that Nikki Haley's a chameleon because she uses the name Nikki and is basically running away from her heritage. And then another host jumps in to point out that Sonny uses a different name. She herself uses a different name. She said, well, that's because of the undereducation of Americans who can't pronounce Asuncion, I think is the name that she has chosen to not use in her life for her own reasons. It's such a stupid and hypocritical attack, given Sonny's own decision on this exact same subject for herself, and it's also ignorant. Nikki Haley has faced this many times before. The left gets awfully bigoted sometimes when it comes to her and conservative or Republican figures who are minorities. They find ways to come after them that are very unseemly and in this case also inaccurate. Nikki Haley has been correcting the record on this for years because it's a smear of her really directed at her core, at her identity, at her family, that isn't true, but it keeps getting recycled over and over again. So she tweeted yesterday, and I like this, a little fiery from Nikki Haley, quote, thanks for your concern, Sonny. It's racist of you to judge my name. Nikki is an Indian name, and it is on my birth certificate, and I'm proud of that. What's sad is the left's hypocrisy towards conservative minorities. By the way, last I checked, Sonny isn't your birth name. So making that point as well. Haley was on Fox News earlier today addressing the topic. Cut 36. You look at what Sonny Hostins does and, you know, the idea that, no, Sonny is not her name. Nikki is my name. It is on my birth certificate. It is an Indian name, and I embrace my Indian heritage. I have written two books that describe the struggles that my family had, what it was like growing Mm -hmm. up. But the idea that they can do this, you're not going to see her fired from that show. We're not even going to see an apology from that show because they let liberals say that about conservative Republican minorities all the time. But yet nothing is done. Had this been said about a Democrat, all hell would have broken loose. So much of that show, The View, is just an ignorant hate fest all the time. But Nikki had... Sonny just dead to rights on this one. I don't think she's calling for Sonny to be fired. I think an apology would be in order. I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath for that. By the way, one other irony on this, particularly involving The View, there's a co-host at The View named Karen Elaine Johnson. Have you heard of her? Karen Johnson, co-host of The View? You would recognize her. She goes by a different name. I regret to inform you that... Whoopi Goldberg was not given either of those names at birth. That's a name that she adopted for her own reasons, but her name is Karen Elaine Johnson. So you have maybe the most famous co-host of the show who uses and has for her whole career effectively a stage name. Fine. She's known as Whoopi. That's how the American people know her. It's not her birth name. Is she running away from something? Is she running away from her ethnicity? or her race, or her family, or anything like that, would Sonny Hostin, also not her real name, ever level that allegation against Whoopi, or someone like Whoopi? Or would she look in the mirror and make the same finger-pointing claim? Of course not. They don't even think about these things before they say them. It's just fair game. Open season to say whatever you want about people that you disagree with, no matter how nasty and inaccurate it gets. And I think Sonny really stepped in it here. And Nikki Haley was not going to let her off the hook. 
with Nikki actually being her name, an Indian name, on the birth certificate. It's just, it's a clean win for Nikki Haley. I think she played it well. Although, sometimes winning a clean victory over the ladies on that show is not the hardest thing to do. Right? Just to be fair. The Guy Benson Show continues when we come back. Very significant developments out of Russia and Ukraine. A shocking announcement earlier that has a lot of people concerned about the next steps in that conflict. We will have General Keith Kellogg here to break it down straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show and through the week here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Broadcasting from Chicago today. Glad you are here. GuyBensonShow.com as always. That's our website. Podcast free of charge when the show is over in about an hour and a half and change. With us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and former Chief of Staff, of the National Security Council in the Trump administration. His book is War by Other Means, and he joins us from our D.C. studio. General, great to have you back. Guy, thanks for having me back. appreciate it. Uh, Delighted to have you. I want to start with just a few sound bites. This was Vladimir Putin making an announcement that I woke up to this morning that has everyone in the military world talking, a significant escalation in Ukraine. Cut one. I think it is necessary to support the proposal of the Ministry of Defense and the General Staff to conduct a partial mobilization in Russia. I repeat, we are only talking about a partial mobilization. All right, there's a few other things that he said that we'll get to, but let's just start with this. What precisely are the Russians doing, and what explains the timing of what seems like a pretty dramatic decision here? Yeah, Guy, well, look, what, what he's really doing, he's, he's admitting the fact that he's had some enormous problems fighting in Ukraine and he needs manpower. The estimate is about one-third of his invasion force, which were primarily professionals, were uh, pretty badly beat up, uh, dead and wounded at that range. And that means when you have that many hurt and wounded, killed, you have to replace those. The trouble is with the conscript, you're bringing people that are not well-trained, it's going to take time to do it and train them up. So what it, it's a self-acknowledgement that he has not done well in the fight, and he needs more manpower. But there's a there's a second and third part to that. The second part of it is... When he goes to mobilization, that means he increases the industrial base of capability so he can get more ammunition, more tanks. And the third is the political piece, which means this is he can, he can kind of uh, declare almost a war instead of just a special military operation. Now, the announcement that they made publicly entailed a bunch of spin and propaganda. Basically, we've lost very few troops. The Ukrainians have been wiped out. But that just is totally incongruous with the move that they're making, right? You can't, I think, credibly claim even to a populace that has been fed a bunch of lies about this war for months on end, I just don't think it makes any sense to tell them, oh, yeah, the Ukrainians are decimated and we've generally been okay, but now we need to call up 300,000 conscripts, basically, for manpower. Those things don't seem to really align, in my mind at least. Well, they don't align at all, and I think most people would agree that they don't align. Most of the intelligence reports we're getting – the casualties are seventy-five to 80,000 dead and wounded, and which is enormous. And the other thing is, here's something that a lot of people don't really pick up right away is they, they don't pick up their dead from the battlefield, which is a real – it really ha- hammers your morale. When you go into battle and you know that your buddies aren't going to bring you back, 
Uh, that doesn't bring you to a real good fighting force. And when you go from a professional military, which it is for the most part in the Russian army today, to a conscript military, that changes everything on how you fight, how you lead, uh, what kind of troop morale you're going to have. So he's walking into a very difficult situation on trying to break up his manning. And, and again, these people aren't going to come to the battlefield early. They've got to be retrained, put on the battlefield, put in, in units, and, and he's got a long road to hoe yet. And I think it's clearly showing to the world that he's on his back foot. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And just from a readiness perspective, it would make sense and it would follow that these people that they're basically going to quickly, in this desperate mode, try to train up and get battle ready as quickly as humanly possible, then out to the front they go. Uh, these would be woefully underprepared people for the most part, would it not? I mean, if you're looking at the type of fighting force that the Russians will be dealing with and going to war with, the Ukrainians will be fighting a far less sophisticated, far less capable force than the one that they've already hammered pretty hard. That seems like even if they get those warm bodies to the battlefield, it might go very badly for them. Yeah, and when you, when you look at it, this goes back to an old Napoleonic axiom, which the morale is three is to one. The morale to physical is three is to one, which means the, the, the heart of a fighting unit counts for a lot, and the, the Ukrainians have that. The Russians won't, especially with a conscript military. They, this is something they hadn't planned on. When they did their new doctrine years ago, they had intended not to do what they're doing unless you went to general war by bringing as many troops in. And this is going to have real ramifications on the civilian population there in, in Russia itself. From what I've heard even today, all flights leaving Moscow are filled right now. And you saw some of the riots going on in the uh, small riots going on in the city streets of Moscow that this is going to affect him. And, and if he doesn't watch out, you know, Putin's going to end up like Tsar Nicholas did in, you know, two, in 1917 when somebody's going to take him out. And, and he's got to have a big concern that the Russian elite, the Siloviki, just might do that. Well, and the fact that you've got all these people rushing to leave the country now that they've pulled this trigger on this mobilization, that obviously tells a story that there are a lot of people in that country who realize what's happening now and they're petrified that they're going to have to go fight this war that clearly they have not been told the truth about, that they've been misled about every step of the way. And the report was because so many people were booking flights to leave Moscow and leave Russia uh, for various other countries where visas aren't required, the government has now banned the airlines from selling tickets to military-age men, which is like 18 to 65, I think, was the broad definition that they were using there. So that is obviously a recipe potentially general for major domestic unrest which is or at least discontent deep discontent and a realization of what they're being told and have been told isn't accurate you have that potential tinderbox or pressure cooker inside russia coupled with all of the setbacks in ukraine that's a dangerous combination for him yeah it, guy it is and that's the reason why i think this whole concept of him using nuclear weapons he brought it up and I know that President Biden today spoke about it at the U.N. General Assembly. In fact, let's but just listen quickly. Since okay. you raised it, here is Putin once again raising the specter of the use of nuclear weapons. He did this months ago, sort of. And here he is coming back to the topic in cut two. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will without doubt use all available means to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. And those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the prevailing winds can also blow in their direction. This is not a bluff, Putin said. 
President Biden at the U.N. today responding to all of this cut 16. No matter what else is happening in the world, the United States is ready to pursue critical arms control measures. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. All right, General, back to Putin and what he said. When you have to say out loud, it's not a bluff. People will obviously wonder, is this in fact a bluff? Is this bravado? Is this him realizing that he's in deep trouble or on his back foot, as you put it? What is Putin up to here? Because this is not a threat to trifle with or to play around with lightly. Yeah, Guy, his message was directed at one person. It was was actually sent to Joe Biden. Because he knows that we are providing almost 80% of the humanitarian, economic, and military aid to Ukraine. We are, in fact, a proxy member of this war. And he's sending that you know, to, to Putin. Uh, Putin is sending that to Biden that, hey, watch out. I've got the nuclear hold card. We need to go all in. We need to push back on it. And we haven't. And that's the reason he's able to pull this bluff out. Because our concern is, well, if we give them more weapons, more advanced weapons, they, the Ukrainians, then he may f- fulfill on his on his on his comment about going to a low yield nuclear weapons strike, and and they think that's in their DNA though, guy, because they actually think about escalation, de-escalation, in non-strategic nuclear weapons. We don't even have that in our dictionary. We don't even talk about it. But they've got over two thousand of those weapons, which ranges from one kiloton to hundred kilotons. Let's use the one kiloton as an example. That's got a blast radius of about five miles. They believe they can use that, and that doesn't start World War III. And I'm not sure it would. Because it's not a strategic nuclear weapon. So he's trying to send a message to a little bit of a bluff by going all in, and we should match that. Is it a bluff or is it not? Because if they're actually considering or there's some non-zero chance that they might use a tactical nuke in this war, that would be obviously a massive development. And I guess their calculation is it would not result in World War III. But I don't know. A Russian regime using nuclear weapons, that... That would yeah, be well, extremely disturbing, and I don't know what would come next. Yeah. Well, I think disturbing is probably a pretty good word. But, you know, it's interesting. Just about uh, about eight years ago, there was actually a war game done in, inside the White House under the uh, Obama-Biden administration where the, the principals committee, you know, when they used a technical weapon, wanted to react strongly. And the deputies, the number twos, when they had their deputies meeting, recommended against it. So there's going to be a real question what kind of yield is it? What happens out there? Is it on our soil? Are you going to take it to the next step? Because we we don't go with nucle- tactical nuclear weapons. We got away with from that when we had what's called the Davy Crockett system. We didn't want the sergeants to start World War III. If we respond, you have to go strategic, and I don't think we'd go strategic. So what you want to do is you want to prevent him from going there, and you prevent him from going there by giving the Ukrainians the, the ability to finish this fight in the near term before they can mobilize uh, to, to full extent, and that's going to take a few months. General Kellogg shifting gears to another adversary, another global threat, the Chinese. We heard from President Biden on 60 Minutes this past weekend, another direct question posed to the president about U.S. forces defending Taiwan. Should there be an invasion by the CCP and the People's Liberation Army? And the response unequivocally from President Biden was, yes, we would defend Taiwan. Then the White House, as has happened previously around this question, clarified that their policy actually hadn't changed. So this is three, maybe four times that we've done this kind of dance on the issue of Taiwan. I just wonder what you make of the president's answer. And then just from a military perspective, let's say 
we get to a point, maybe an eventuality, where the Chinese decide to make a move on Taiwan, if we are committed to defend them, what would that look like? What would the U.S. have to do to help the Taiwanese have any prayer of not being totally overrun by this massive, you know, leviathan right across that sea? Yeah, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version because that's a pretty complicated question and an answer with it. Look, to start with, it, Joe Biden's the president of the United States. I'd call in my staff and say, look, I've said it four times. I mean this. This is what we're going to do. Then now you figure out how you're going to do it. And to start with, if you're really serious about that, then maybe we need to reinitiate uh, the defense treaty, which we had, the Sino-U.S. defense treaty that was abrogated in 1976 unilaterally by by Jimmy Carter, where we had we had said we were going to defend Taiwan, and then we got away from that when we went to a one-China policy. In fact, by doing what Biden is saying, you're really at a you're at a de facto two-China policy. You know, we're going to defend Taiwan. If we're going to do that, there's got to be ways to do that, and that's going to take a lot of thinking because you cannot close your carrier battle groups in close anymore because of the type of weapon systems the Chinese have. And how you really do that, you make it very, very difficult for the Chinese to invade, either they're, either with arming uh, Taiwan to a much fuller extent than they are currently having, uh, or also posturing your forces more in the Pacific than we've done right now. Because right now, Biden has said that, as you said, multiple times. And, and he's the commander-in-chief. He's the one who makes those decisions, but they've walked it back. So, you know, so much for strategic ambiguity, and it's confusing to everybody. I think he's very serious about it. Then we need to let Congress get involved, let the people of the United States get involved. Is this in our national interest that we do it? And if so, then let's go out and defend them in a proper way by putting it in, in a defense treaty. If not, stop talking that way because if the, I believe the Chinese are looking. They've got about a two-year window, and their two-year window is in Biden's administration. If they want to do something like invade, they're going to have to do it in the next two years because nobody really knows who's coming in in two years. But they've got to assume it will be a stronger president when it comes to use of force in international relations. So it, it's going to be pretty dicey what he wants to do, but I don't think he's made a decision about his administration and the adults in the room walking uh, his statements back. It says we really yeah. don't know what we want to do either. Well, and I'm totally pro-Taiwan as a fellow democracy and an independent country, and I'm very much harshly critical of the CCP because they deserve it. I also, just as a realistic person, I wonder, is Taiwan defensible? Like, could a successful defense of the island be mounted against an all-out invasion from the Chinese military? I'm skeptical of that. It sounds like you think maybe there would be a possibility, or, or am I mishearing you? No, guy. Look, any invasion is hard. Invasion of an island is really hard. The Germans learned that when they invaded Crete in in World War II. And remember, the Taiwan Straits are 100 miles wide. That's about a little bit further than it took us to get from England to Normandy. So anytime you do some type of cross-channel invasion, it's difficult because if you put forces on the ground and you cannot reinforce them from sea, then it's a problem. And And we could interdict a lot of the ships that are type of assault vessels the Chinese have. And we would pick up on that. You cannot just do this from the air. You cannot just do it from a parachute invasion. You're going to have to use troops come across the Taiwan Straits. And we'd pick up on that. And there's some things we can do to defer that, to include use of uh, anti-ship missiles or things like that that could make it really, really, really difficult for the Chinese to do it. Can they do it by sheer manpower? Sure. But remember, the last time the Chinese have really fought a conventional fight goes back to the Korean War. They really haven't done it since then. It is not easy to do an invasion. It's very hard to do combined arms. And the Chinese really haven't proven that they can do that. Final question in Iran. We're seeing these protests in the streets, lots of very courageous women 
burning their head coverings, protesting the regime, which has killed now a number of people. There's a lot of unrest in Tehran and around the country. Meanwhile, the Supreme Leader is reportedly gravely ill, maybe on his deathbed. It seems like maybe a combustible moment in that country as well. What is your thought on the significance of what's happening in Iran right now? Well, they've always, you know, we've always had demonstrations. We've seen demonstrations there, and they always put them down pretty hard because he's got a pretty significant internal security force that they're willing to do that. And, and I don't think much is going to come of it because it would actually take for, for that government to fall or even have problems. You would have to have the army on your side and the Revolutionary Guards on your side as well, and I don't think they're there at all. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of noise. The bigger concern I have uh, Iran is if they do a nuclear breakout in the near term, and I think the potential for that within this year is very, very high. And when that happens, then you have true destabilization in the Middle East. Well, an extremely complex moment geopolitically and militarily. And we just walked through a lot of the reasons why in these last, what, 15 minutes or so with our guest, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, a Fox News contributor, former chief of staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. General, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. And we are back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. An intriguing poll out of Florida. This survey from Suffolk University, and they measured the two big statewide races, governor and senator. On the Senate side, they've got Marco Rubio leading Val Demings by four points. So a decent lead for Rubio, but not ironclad. But Rubio plus four in this poll. And then in the gubernatorial contest, it is Ron DeSantis, the incumbent Republican governor, leading by seven points over Charlie Crist, which is a pretty sizable lead, especially in a state like Florida. So good news there for the Republicans in the 2022 realm. There's also a very interesting series of data points that they tested looking ahead to 2024. At the beginning of this year, in January, Suffolk polled these questions, and Donald Trump was leading Ron DeSantis in a hypothetical head-to-head for the Republican nomination for president in Florida. Trump was plus seven. These months later, here we are in September, the new poll has DeSantis leading Trump by eight points in Florida in that same type of matchup. What about in a general election? They do Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Harris, both hypothetical. Trump leading by three points and two points, respectively, in the general. Again, very hypothetical. What if it were DeSantis against Biden and Harris? DeSantis leading Biden by eight points and Kamala Harris by 12 points. Very interesting. If DeSantis runs for president, he's going to be making an electability argument. And this would at least help him, I think, buttress and make that case. We'll broaden things out beyond Florida and talk about the 2022 landscape. When we come back, Josh Krasauer in our final hour. It's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's happy hour time here on the Guy Benson Show from Chicago. 
Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free, always on demand every single day when the show is over a little after 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can also check out FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts for that. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Lots of goodies, good bonus content there as well. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic, very refreshing. And I know some people think of it as a summer drink, but I view it also as a fall drink, really a year-round drink for me personally. You should check it out if you haven't already, thelongdrink.com. You can see where they're sold near you, really expanding that map. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Please drink responsibly, 21-plus only. And with us now is Josh Krausauer, senior politics reporter at Actios and a Fox News radio political analyst Kind of a weekly check-in with him as we get closer and closer to the election. We are inside seven weeks. Josh, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. Great to be back on the show. All right. Let's kind of take a big step back before we dive into some of the weeds. And you, over the summer, trying to think maybe about a month ago, were talking about and writing about something of a vibe shift in the election in favor of the Democrats, where what had been for a long time expected to be a big red wave type environment had changed. And while the Republicans were still at least favored in the House, a lot of other factors had come into play and it was feeling less like a type of red wave year. That was the vibe shift that you described. Now you've written this week that maybe the vibe is shifting back. How much of that is real at this point do you believe that it's back to sort of a a spring trajectory where does the overall landscape stand at the moment in your mind so first throughout much of 2022 it looked like it was going to be a major red wave for republicans then we had the vibe shift over over the summer but i think the vibe shift has given way to a reality check yes things have gotten better for democrats no, it's not a, a good environment for Democrats. It's still a favorable environment for Republicans. And look, the, the, the political environment suggests that Republicans have a very good chance to win back a Senate majority. It's not going to be a big Senate majority, but they have a clear path to getting to 51 Senate seats, get that one Senate seat netted to give Mitch McConnell the gavel. And you also are looking at 15 to 20 House pickups, maybe more. And the Fox Power Rankings uh, that came out this week showed an estimate of about 231 Republican House seats when all is said and done. That would be more seats, one more seat, than Newt Gingrich won in 1994 during the famed Republican Revolution, which was seen as a seminal Republican moment in, in congressional history. So I think we need to put things into perspective. No, we're not looking at a likely huge wave for Republicans uh, for the reasons we've talked about. The base for the Democrats have come back home. Uh, inflation has, has lessened a little bit. Gas prices have gone down. And some bad candidates that we've talked about, New Hampshire and Arizona, namely, are costing Republicans possible Senate seats. But big picture is Republicans still are going to be likely to make gains, and they still are on track to, to gain back the House and, and, and a good chance of getting the Senate as well. On inflation, that remains the number one issue overall. The Democrats, I think, were very much hoping that the vibe shift that you described would continue with the easing of inflation. And then we got the report that we did last week, which was – very concerning. Even with the gas prices coming down, inflation still ticking up. 
President Biden trying to diminish that as just an inch and saying, you know, overall, it's not as bad as it could be. I just think that that's pretty awful spin coming from him. And, of course, it didn't help that they had a big celebration on the issue of inflation the very day that that report came out. So I wonder if you felt like, I believe it was last Tuesday when all of that went down, was that a crystallization, perhaps, of this reality check that you're talking about? Yeah, Guy, I'm seeing a lot of Republican ads this past week showing Democratic members of Congress saying that the economy is good, that it's booming, that it's that's in great shape. And, and these ads are mocking the, these Democratic lawmakers for going on TV and, and making those comments. So, yeah, like, the, you know, look, Biden has to say something. I mean, he, he's got to spin it the best way he can. And I think that 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 was a, an able effort on 60 Minutes on Sunday. But they don't they're not playing a good hand. Democrats don't have a good hand when it comes to the economy. The Fox poll, the NBC poll taken in the last couple of weeks show that Republicans hold a double digit advantage when it comes to economic issues. It's the number one issue the the number one concern still for uh, most voters. So that that is that is the fundamentals. The, that is the the major issue shaping this this political environment, and it's hard to see with just a month and a half left until the midterms that that's going to change anytime soon. All right, let's delve into some of the specific races. I just got down to Chicago from Wisconsin. I was up in the Northwoods of Wisconsin for a couple days at an event that I was speaking at with a lot of extremely plugged in political folks in that state who have been in the trenches for years, in some cases decades. And I was there to give them a bit of a national overview, but I was doing a lot of listening to them about what's happening in the state of Wisconsin. And sitting at my dinner table last night was the Speaker of the State House there. At the next table over was the Leader of the Senate. And those are both Republican chambers in Wisconsin, even though they have this Democratic governor out there. So I was picking brains left and right as best I could. And the general sense that I got from those folks is as follows. Number one, the governor's race is a coin flip. They think it could go either way. And maybe the incumbent Evers has the slightest advantage, but they're not really sure. And they feel like truly it's a 50-50 jump ball. They don't know which way that one's going to go. They were, in my mind, surprisingly bullish about Senator Ron Johnson's position for reelection. And they pointed to a whole host of public polls. One person told me that Johnson had never led in a single Marquette poll ever out of that state until one came out just a few days ago that had him up by a single point. A couple polls have him up one. A few other polls have him up three or four. They said some of the private numbers they're seeing look like you know three or four range could be realistic for Johnson. And they're really starting on the Republican side to pummel Mandela Barnes, who has quite a pummelable record, actually. If you look at his statements and the things that he believes, I, these are not moderate sort of mainstream Democratic views. These are out there squad style stuff. And the oppo on him is pretty robust. So that's the sense that I'm getting, at least from this trip to Wisconsin on the ground, that the governor's race could tip in either direction. And they were not you know, supremely confident, like willing to bet their house that Ron Johnson was going to win re-election. But they seemed pretty optimistic about it. I wonder, based on your sources and your reporting, what you think about that. That analysis sounds very spot on. I, we've talked about the Republican Senate candidates that have not been ready for prime time. But I've been writing about uh, the problem Democrats have in Wisconsin in that they nominated Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor, who has a very outspoken track record of being well to the left 
of the average voter in Wisconsin. And one of the more damaging things he did as a candidate, frankly, on the, on the campaign trail earlier this year was come out against bail, coming out, um, you know, basically trying to eliminate or reduce bail at a time when crime is a major, major issue in Wisconsin. And there's a new ad up by uh, the Senate Leadership Fund, which is the big Senate Republican super PAC, highlighting testimony from one of the grandmothers of, of, a, of a young child who was seriously wound, wounded as part of that Waukesha Christmas uh, terror attack. Uh, and that ad packs a punch. And John Mandela Barnes started out as sort of an unknown figure, kind of a young, up-and-coming statewide figure. But his track record, his public comments, his issues on on subjects related to criminal justice, law and order, have really done him in. I mean, the, the ads are, are brutal. They've been nonstop on the Republican side. And he frankly hasn't had a good response. He hasn't responded much uh, on his own on the television airwaves. Uh, so the numbers have moved very rapidly. You, we, there were polls out in August showing Mandela Barnes leading. And I, I think I said at the time, don't automatically buy the polls in August. Wait till the messaging goes on the TV. Wait till the attacks get, get litigated back and forth. And like you said, Guy, the polling has moved pretty dramatically where Johnson is now ahead in almost all the major polls out in Wisconsin. So let's say that Ron Johnson wins re-election. In my mind, that would be a very significant step forward for the Republicans generally. If you look at the map, if they can hold Wisconsin and then also hang on to some of the other red-tinted seats that are currently held by the GOP, you know, Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, maybe a few of those too close for comfort, but I think ultimately probably stay red. If you can hang on to Wisconsin, if you're the Republicans, that then really opens up a series of possibilities to get to 51, which is what they would need to do. And the other potential seat that the Democrats want to flip, Wisconsin being near the top of their list, at the very top of the Democrats' list is Pennsylvania. If the Republicans can somehow find a way to hold Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, then I think they're absolutely in the driver's seat to take the majority in the Senate. Even a few weeks ago, the idea that Dr. Oz might be able to beat John Fetterman uh, was not reflected at all in the polling. Fetterman had a big lead. Oz was gaining no traction and just sort of putzing along, not doing anything in terms of the numbers. And you and I talked about it. You did a reporting trip to Pennsylvania. Uh, There's a really tough column out today by George Will going after Fetterman that I think is actually pretty devastating for Fetterman. Uh, I saw that you highlighted on Twitter, I think, a very good ad by Dr. Oz talking about Fetterman dodging debates because he doesn't want to defend his crazy positions on any number of issues that he highlights in the ad. I thought it was a very strong ad from Oz. You said when you were in the Keystone State, there was definitely a sense that the race was tightening. It might be tightening further. Crime seems to be front and center in that state and very much what Oz is leaning into in terms of his messaging. What's your current read on the PA Senate race? It's a toss-up, and, and Dr. Oz may, may be winning the Comeback Candidate of the Year award because he, he, he was in tough shape in, in August, and he got hammered in the primary. He, his messaging was frankly off. He didn't really have a, a clear message and, and hadn't campaigned aggressively after winning that nomination. And spending a, some time with him on the campaign trail, he is now squarely focused on winning over suburban voters, the swing voters, that, that make, make the difference in Pennsylvania races. Uh, and he did a pretty good job uh, of it, campaigning with go, uh, former Governor Haley, former Ambassador Haley, also John Kennedy in Bucks County later that week. He is focused on crime. He's focused on taxes. He's focused on Fetterman's health and the debates. 
And uh, look, I, I think this is a very going to be a very close race. It's a, the three the three races that are going to decide the Senate in my mind. Everything else is tilting in one direction or another, and that's Pennsylvania, and that's N- Nevada, and and it's also the big Georgia Senate race with Herschel Walker and, and Senator Warnock. Um, that that Pennsylvania race is moving in the GOP's direction. The Georgia race, interestingly, is is tilting a little bit in the GOP's direction, but they're both very close. And Oz started out with a big deficit, and the Georgia race is still tight as a tick based on the public polling. Yeah, I talked to someone when I was in Wisconsin. One of the other visitors was in town from western Pennsylvania, someone who really understands Pennsylvania politics, and she told me in her estimation and based on her experience, she believes Dr. Oz will win that race. And I sort of raised my eyebrows at that. It seems more plausible than ever, certainly, uh, and, and looking back at the summer, for example. Uh, but we'll see. That's a huge one. If the Republicans, as I say, if Oz pulls that one out, then I think that they are in all likelihood going to be holding that Senate majority. Josh Krausauer, two more states, two more races that I want to pick your brain about. Let's do that right after this break. So stand by. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Josh Krasauer still with us, breaking down some of these Senate races. You mentioned Georgia. There's a single debate that has been agreed to October the 13th. We had Herschel on the show just recently. He's basically setting the expectation that he will lose this debate. He said, I'm a simple country boy. I'm not that smart. I'm just here because I love Georgia and the country. And, you know, he's a great speaker. He's a preacher. He's a senator. You know, so in a debate, you know, he's basically playing the expectations management game uh, in a way that makes sense. Also, I think generally the consensus is, yeah, that Warnock would be heavily favored in a debate setting. What do you think Walker would have to do to solidify potentially a lead that he might be building. Do you think the debate is going to be decisive or are we putting too much stock into that one, you know, two hour time frame heading down this home stretch? I don't think it's going to be decisive. The, the, there's not a lot of persuadable voters left in Georgia. This could be a very close race, but a lot of folks have made up their minds and I think the bar is pretty low, frankly, for, for Herschel Walker to, to pass. He's doing a smart thing in lowering expectations. Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, is a very accomplished debater. It, it reminds me, a uh, guy of, remember the 20, uh, 2008 uh, vice presidential debate between Biden and Sarah Palin and how it was all hyped up and everyone wanted to see how Sarah Palin would do. And, frankly, the expectations were set so low that Palin was easily able to, to pass that bar. And I think you'll see a similar dynamic in that Georgia debate with, with Herschel Walker. The, I think the big challenge for Walker is, is he seen as ready to serve in the Senate by those suburban voters that flip back, that flip back and forth between Democrats and the runoffs last year and, and usually mm-hmm. vote for Republicans in, in most other elections? If he can convince those swing voters who tend to tilt Republican, Governor Kemp supporters, that, that he's, you know, the type of Republican that they, that they can get behind, he'll he'll probably win this. If, if, he, if it seems like he's a little not ready for prime time, if he doesn't have any command of the issues, if he doesn't hit that low bar, then that could put this race very much uh, in play for Warren. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, the only thing is, to me, the bigger the margin for Kemp on the governor's side, the better it could be for Herschel as well, because they'll be... Ticket splitters, but at some point you can't count on too many of them. 
And if Kemp is winning by eight or nine points or something like that, it would be awfully difficult, I think, for Warnock to overcome that. But we will see. Huge race there. Very quickly, last question, Josh. You mentioned Nevada. We just had Laxalt on the show. He seems like a very good candidate for the Republicans, but he's not really pulling away from a lackluster, mediocre non-entity in Cortez Masto, the incumbent Democrat, who they're spending tons of money to try to prop her up. Do you think the fact that that race is still tied with what should be a favorable matchup, I think, for Republicans, is that a worry for them, or is that just an artifact of late breakers waiting to the last minute, and Laxalt probably has the advantage here? It's a toss-up. Laxalt looked like the Republican most likely to, to win a Democratic held seat for much of this year. I think that still is operative. Uh, but, but look, if you, any time an incumbent is tied or trailing in September, that's not a good sign. So I, I would, I, I think there's plenty of time left in this campaign. But the fact that Laxalt is tied in, in most of these polls within the margin of error against Senator Cortez Masto, that that's pretty encouraging for Republicans. Nevada, unlike some of these other battlegrounds, it's got a lot of working class voters, a lot of Hispanic voters who have been tilting a little bit more toward the Republicans lately. So the, the fundamentals, the d- dynamic in that contest, I think still uh, you know, benefit, favor Republicans to the slightest. But look, Senator Masto has spending more money. Democrats, I believe, have a financial advantage uh, both on the candidate side and the outside spending. So it's going to go down to the wire. But like all these toss-up races, these these are these three races are about as close as they come. Whoever wins two of the three is going to be holding the majority in the Senate. In next well, year. we had Senator Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman, here on the show yesterday. He was very bullish, very optimistic. He predicted at least 52 Republican seats, and that's his job. We brought Josh in here to give us uh, sort of more of an impartial analysis, let's say. And it seems like what he's hearing is similar to what I'm hearing as well. And we'll be checking in for the next seven weeks as we get closer and closer to the 8th of November. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, guy. And we'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue here with the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, earlier on the show today, we were very happy to have back here Kimberly Strassel, who's an author, a columnist, and, of course, a Fox News contributor. A lot to talk about with her, as always. Here's part of that conversation that we had with Kim Strassel. Jean-Pierre suggesting that when Biden said the words the pandemic is over, was he distracted by the cars at the car show? It's just seeming like they can't quite land on an answer about what the president actually believes and what policies would flow from it. Well, first of all, Guy, can you believe that this is where we are? Essentially, the White House is constantly trying to clean up behind everything that Joe Biden says. But here's my suspicion as to why they are being very fuzzy here and they they're being very careful and trying to walk back his words a little bit. And it all comes down to money. If there is still an emergency, there is all kinds of ways Democrats can continue shoveling money out the door to people in ways that they want to. So, for instance, we have legislation saying that uh, as long as there is an emergency, uh, states can't kick people off of Medicaid rolls. There's been a dramatic increase in the number of people on them uh, since the COVID pandemic began, and they can't get rid of them. Uh, food stamps, work requirements, those are all waived so long as there is a pandemic and an emergency going on. 
Uh, this is the excuse they've used to push forward forbearance on student loans. Um, and of course, they're asking for billions more from Congress right now in additional COVID money. So they have to claim that there's still an emergency. So the president was speaking truth in that interview, but it's going to create a bunch of policy headaches for them. And that's why they're now creeping back. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I want to ask you a question just about politics and the elections coming up, talking a lot about it in the first hour. We had a candidate on here. We've got uh, more analysis coming up in the next hour. Specifically, I know that you spend a lot of time in Alaska. You've got a house up there. What is your take and read on the ranked choice voting experiment in Alaska? Because I know a lot of Republicans say, well, hold up. Here is a congressional special election where 60 percent of the votes went to Republicans, but the Democrat won because of this system. And it took a while to hammer out exactly who won and days to actually announce it. Uh, What are your thoughts on that voting process? And then how are you looking at the Senate race and the at-large House race in Alaska coming up in November? Yeah, first of all, let me tell you from experience, ranked choice voting is a mess. And if it ever threatens to come to your state, just say no. Um, Part of the problem here, too, was that this initiative in Alaska that passed also created a jungle primary system in the beginning. When Don Young passed away and they held that initial special election, we had something like 47 candidates on the ballot. Um, So there was really no way to, to get down to people's actual policy positions. Then you come up to the, the general election for that special election. Um, and uh, yes, uh, in the first round, only 40 percent of uh, uh, the state voted for Mary Patola, the Democrat. And that makes sense. This is a state that went you know, 10 points for Donald Trump um, in the last election. Um, and yet somehow, because of the way this works, because the candidate with the fewest ballots after the first round gets eliminated – And because a lot of uh, Alaskans, especially Republican voters in protest, chose not to choose a second choice um, because it was a protest, um, in the end, you had these juked results that ended up with uh, the first Democrat representing a House seat in Alaska for decades and decades. Um, And you now have the Republican Party in Alaska doing a whole bunch of education efforts just to try to explain how all this works. Um, and voting should just simply not be that complicated. So as we're going forward, we're obviously – that special election was just to fill the, the end of the term of Don Young. Um, and now we're going to have a general election uh, to see who fills the next two years. Uh, we will see what happens and if the Republican Party actually manages to explain to its voters uh, how this works. Um, this is also very interesting in terms of the Senate race. Uh, Lisa Murkowski obviously benefited uh, profoundly from this jungle primary system. If she'd had to face her uh, primary opponent, Republican primary opponent, Kelly Sabaka, in a straight-up primary, she undoubtedly would have lost. Instead, because of this jungle system, she moved ahead to the next round. But even there, there was recently a a projection poll by uh, AARP based on information they got back in a poll from voters showing that this could still be a very tight race. It's unlikely that a Democrat wins that seat, but it is still a situation where it could be very close between Murkowski and Sabaka. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that. It's just interesting, a state that doesn't always get a ton of attention nationally, but because of sort of this interesting quirk, I wanted to ask you about it. Meanwhile, 
There's news today out of New York. The attorney general suing Donald Trump and his company for what she says is widespread lying and fraud. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Republicans will see this as a politically motivated witch hunt that they have been waging against Donald Trump forever. And this is deep blue New York getting in on the act. Uh, then people who hate Trump will say, you know, good. Uh, the more investigations, the more indictments, the more lawsuits, the better. He's got all this coming to him. Uh, I'm sitting here sort of suspicious of the motives in New York. I also don't understand if they're accusing him of like you know, lying and like tax evasion and, and, and fraud. Why aren't they filing charges as opposed to filing a lawsuit? I, I don't know if that's a legal distinction that makes sense to me. I might be missing something in the context of all these other things flying around right now. What's your analysis of this one? Yeah, this is very hard to take seriously only for this reason, Guy. And I think that this is the real problem is that Letitia James, the attorney general, actually campaigned on promising to prosecute or sue Donald Trump um, before she was even in office, before she had even taken any look at anything that he had done. Um, that's hugely problematic for a law enforcement official to make those kind of promises, and it inevitably means that if such prosecution does come, some such lawsuit, the people, of course, are going to be skeptical of it. And I think the other thing that makes people skeptical is the timing because of what you said. Uh, we're headed into the midterms right now. Um, suddenly you have this raid in Mar-a-Lago. Suddenly you have this. And all of these things are colliding. And it certainly makes it much easier for Donald Trump and his supporters to suggest that there is a, a campaign to get him. Yeah, and I think that's certainly overall what the Republican response to this story is going to be. Meanwhile, I would like to ask you about a column that you wrote, and it dovetails nicely with something that we were asking Glenn Youngkin about, the governor of Virginia. He was on the show yesterday. A big reason that he won in my state was education. Angry parents on COVID issues, on indoctrination issues, just uh, you know, education generally. Parents in particular felt like the Democrats and their union allies were failing kids. Youngkin caught that sort of energy in a bottle, and he was able to then parlay that into something of an upset victory in an increasingly blue state. My full interview with Kimberly Strassel, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The entire show is available, start to finish, on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. It's a baseball topic but I'm more interested in focusing on this question. If you had a piece of history in your hands that had almost literally fallen into your hands, but it was part of someone else's history-making crusade, would you hang on to it? Would you part with it? Would you exact a price? A college student in the Bronx last night had to make those decisions on a home run ball that he caught. We'll discuss that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the 3-1. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. Aaron James Judge has tied George Herman Babe Ruth with 60 home runs. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. 
That was Michael Kay on the call. The Yes Network last night in New York. The Yankees playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. And you heard there Aaron Judge tying Babe Ruth and the 60 home run mark in a season. If he gets his 61st, which everyone is expecting sometime soon, he would tie Roger Maris and then could break that record in at least the Yankees franchise in the next couple of nights, potentially. I think my brother might be going to the game tonight. He's very much hoping to see Judge make even more history. But beyond what happened specifically for Judge with that swing of the bat, that came in the bottom of the ninth inning. Yankees were trailing by four runs going into the ninth, and it was not looking great. Not a game that I was expecting them to win. I put my phone down because I was at this event in Wisconsin. Next thing I know, I'm getting text messages about what has happened. Judge homered to pull the Yankees to within three, and a number of batters later, the bases were loaded for another Yankee. Giancarlo Stanton at the plate, bases juiced, Yankees down three, and here's how the game ended, cut 32. Just an epic walk-off for the Yankees. Very, very cool to see. Just bananas at the stadium. People going crazy. You could hear the crowd in the background there. But it's great to win the game. Love to see the walk-off Grand Slam. Sorry if you're a Pirates fan. But the big story that the national sports media is following is this quest by Aaron Judge to hit certain milestones and then surpass them. So out in left center field, there is a young man named Michael Kessler college student, 20 years old, who had decided last minute to go to the game. Hopped on the subway, was able to get a ticket out there, and he stuck around, obviously, as did most of the fans, and he caught the home run ball on a bounce. That's a piece of history instantly. Here is Kessler describing what happened in Cut 33. Describe what happened. You saw the ball. Just describe the moment. Uh, it hit the top of the top of the bullpen, hit off someone's hand, and I just reached and grabbed it. And you were on the bottom of the pile, huh? It wasn't so much of a pile. I tried to get off to the side and get out of there as quick as possible. So what's the plan now? Are you going to get a chance to meet Aaron Judge? Yeah. You excited? I'm excited. How excited? Very excited. Do well, you have any expectations about catching the ball and receiving something in return? Um, no, just wanted to give him, give him back his history. So any way I could give back to Judge, give him so much to the organization, just do my part. So I think that's a cool approach that this guy has. There's no question about keeping the ball for himself. He wants to give it. He said, look, this is his story. This is his history. However, it's not like he's going to get nothing for this. The Yankees offered him the opportunity to go down to the Yankee clubhouse for a meet and greet with Aaron Judge, autograph baseballs, a signed game bat from Judge. So he's going to get some pretty cool artifacts from Judge and probably snap some Photos and have some good content for his Instagram if he's got one. But the ball will be in the possession of the Yankees and Aaron Judge. And it seems like Kessler didn't really put up too much of a fight on that. Which brings us to my question for, let's say, producer Christine, who is not necessarily a huge sports fan, although she's becoming a big football fan. If, Christine, you found yourself at Yankee Stadium in the position of this college student and you end up, Somehow, with this baseball in your possession, perhaps your husband would have to explain to you the significance of the ball, but once you knew that it mattered a lot, 
would you have been this accommodating or would you have held out maybe for a, a bigger bounty in exchange for giving it up? Or do you keep the ball and maybe sell it? What do you do in this kid's shoes? So if I caught the ball, I'm keeping the ball. That's like the end of the story because I caught it. Isn't this like a finder's keepers type thing? Yes, but because of the significance of the home run, the Yankees have been keeping these home run balls. They got the 56th, the 57th, the 58th. There was one that a fan wouldn't give up, home run number 59 in Milwaukee. They're trying to keep these for posterity, for Judge and his you know trophy case and all of that. And it's a piece of baseball history. You seem fairly certain, at least for the moment, that you would keep the ball, period. However, what if everyone has a price, right? What if they offered you a huge amount of incentives to give the ball up? Surely you are not so fixated on keeping that thing that you would not listen to offers. Well, Guy, I know you know this already, but I'm not cheap. And so it would have to be <laughs> it would have to be a very hefty price for me to hand over that ball. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, like you just said, it's a piece of history. Why can't I have the piece of history? Or what if you want it, then you're gonna have to pay for it. I it's a business deal. I think that that's an understandable and defensible position. I like that this fan said that he wanted to give it back to Judge because Judge has done so much for the Yankees and all of that. I think that's probably the attitude that I would have adopted. But the flip side of it is if you look at some of the pieces and articles about this, there are experts suggesting that the 60th home run ball from Aaron Judge could potentially be sold in the ballpark of five figures, like over $10,000 potentially, maybe tens of thousands of dollars. And that's an awful lot of money for anyone. And I would guess home run number 61 and then 62 would be even more valuable, potentially. So, you know, giving that that gold mine up for a few autographed pieces of paraphernalia and an opportunity to go down to the clubhouse and meet Judge, I mean, that's a pretty low price compared to what this thing could probably fetch on the open market. I'm with the, I mean, it's just for me, and, and let's be honest, I'm not, I'm just getting into sports. Now I'm a huge football fan. So I just think that, sorry, if I'm getting the ball, I'm keeping the ball, or you better pony up. Oh, should I not say pony? <laughs> pony up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. RIP. RIP. <laughs> Dan, you're a Yankee fan. You are a sports fan. Is Christine off base? Do you like what this guy Kessler did, or would you have driven a tougher bargain? Well, as a Yankee fan, and I love baseball too, I'm a little torn here. I understand the significance of balls and things like this are. I I don't know that I'm giving the ball back right away. I'd have to really think about it. At least there's got to be a price. I would be like maybe five years behind the plate season tickets or something like that, something, <laughs> okay. something equivalent of maybe like – hundred grand, two hundred grand, because you know the Yankees don't really care about me. So you know I need something back for giving this ball back to Judge. But I do understand that I would probably give the ball back because he wants it. It's a piece of history for the organization and for Aaron Judge. Yeah, and he hit it, and it's baseball history. I did hear that when they had the chance to go meet with Judge and they talked to him down in the clubhouse after the game, Kessler's roommate who was there with him 
took the opportunity to lobby Aaron Judge to stay in New York and to re-sign with the Yankees, which is going to be a big negotiation. He's having this monster year in a walk year, so that contract is going to be gargantuan when it finally gets hammered out, and there's, I guess, a possibility that Judge wouldn't stay in the Bronx if they can't come to terms. So I like the fact that these Yankee fans took the opportunity face-to-face with Judge to be kind of doing him a favor and then in the meantime say, hey, please stay. We want you here. I think that is a good use of their time. I think that is a wise, strategic decision on behalf of the fan base, so I do appreciate that. In the meantime, we are out of time here on The Guy Benson Show from Chicago today. Back in D.C. tomorrow, we've got a great lineup already coming together. Same time, same place for the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night, and thank you, as always, for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.